This podcast is a presentation of Indianola First Assembly of God Church. For more information, please visit us online at indianolafirst.com. Well, this morning, like I said, we're starting a new series today. And uh, I, I guess I, I'll start off by, by saying this. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where uh, a conversation was started up regarding a topic that you were completely ignorant about and you just found yourself in the midst of this conversation and you didn't really know what to do. Because um, I certainly have. And I'll tell you, um, I know absolutely nothing about cars. Uh, back in high school, I changed water pumps, head gaskets, spark plugs, tires, alternators, air conditioning, compressors. I knew makes and models of cars by just looking at them. I even worked as a grease monkey at a garage while I was in college doing some of those same repairs. And now 25 to 30 years later, I know nothing. And I mean nothing. I could change a flat, but I'd probably just use my roadside assistance. I might tackle the, uh, the blinker fluid if I needed to or change the muffler belt if that was what needed to be done. But that would be the end of my car knowledge. And I, and I don't even know makes and models anymore, guys. I, I go down the road, they all look the same to me. I think I rented and drove a Ford while we were in Florida. I drove it for a week, but I couldn't tell you for certain what model it was. It was just, it had a big back end, and I know I was trying to get that thing around the traffic. And I say all of that because when I find myself in a conversation with a bunch of those manly men who know everything about cars, you know what I'm talking about? I, I either have to act like I know what I'm talking about, basically lie, smile and nod, maybe, maybe that's what I could do, smile and nod to whatever they're saying, or just find a reason to leave the conversation politely. Another subject that would uh, cause the same situation for me would be anything and everything sports. I mean, I remember smiling and nodding a lot when talking to a group of people that included Brandon Boyd. Because that guy knew everything about sports. He knew everything about football and baseball and the players and all their stats. And on the other hand, me, I, I'm a Vikings fan and I couldn't name five players in the team right now. Seriously. Some fan, huh? Not much of one. And sure, I could change this. I could read some magazines about cars or sports, maybe spend some time watching YouTube videos or ES3N. Um, but quite frankly, I just don't care about sports. And maybe you don't know how to talk about certain topics either. Maybe you don't care that you don't know about cooking or cars or hunting or music or sports or whatever. And I'm here to tell you that that's okay. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's okay. All right. And that's your choice. You don't have to know about those things that you really don't want to know about and that you don't care about. But there is one subject that you can't avoid. It's a subject that you absolutely can't neglect pushing yourself to have great understanding in. And it's a topic that you must know and it's your responsibility to know. And it's the subject of your faith. We just did a two-week mini-series on Wednesday evening on how to share your faith. And in that series, I talked briefly about the scripture 
found in 1 Peter 3.15, and that's going to be our, kind of our main scripture this morning. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a, the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. As Christians, we cannot afford to merely know about and accept the good news of the gospel. That's great. That's wonderful that we know. How many are glad you know the good news of the gospel? Amen? Amen. I'm glad I know it. But we also have a responsibility to do something with it, to share it. And share it in a way that is clear and concise. Plus having answers for those that want to know the reason for that particular hope that they have seen is within you. Do you understand that people look at you and they go, wow, you're peculiar. You're different. What's different about you? How many have ever, have ever had anyone say to them, why are you so happy all the time? Why are you so different? How come tough things don't get you down? How come difficult things don't seem to wipe you out? That is them. That is the, the divine appointment that God has set up for you to go in and share the hope, the reason for the hope that is within you. That's an open door, folks. And how many say, how many know that some of us say, well, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's good. I, I'm just different, I guess. I just have a different outlook on life. I'm happy because my wife was nice to me. I'm happy because I go to church. Maybe we just leave it at that. We need to have an answer, a good, clear, concise answer to give the reason for the hope that's within us. It's our responsibility. And that involves testifying about why you have that hope. And it will also undoubtedly involve defending that faith from time to time. Because how many know when you start talking about Jesus, people don't want to hear it? They'll hear you about God. They'll listen to about your church activities and the programs you're involved with. But the moment you start talking about Jesus, they get offended. They don't like that name. There's something about that name. How many know there's something about the name of Jesus? It's powerful. It's powerful. You're going to have to defend your faith from time to time. Not for the sake of being argumentative, but to defend your faith in Jesus Christ as the reason for the hope that you have. And that brings me to a word that you may or may not be acquainted with. Many of you probably are. Apologetics. And it is a word that simply means defending your faith. Apologetics. Defending your faith. A more official meaning is it's a systematic argumentative discourse in defense of a doctrine. This is the boring version. But some of you may want to take a picture of the screen so you have this definition. In defense of a doctrine, a branch of theology devoted to the defense of the divine origin and authority of Christianity. It's a defense of the Christian faith from attacks by those outside the Christian community. It's really defending your faith. Defending your faith. And it often uses critical thinking, philosophy, and even science to produce logical arguments that convince, prove, and defend the Christian faith. I gotta drink some water because uh, I don't want the message to be dry. It's a really bad joke. In other words, when your faith comes under attack, you have to have an answer, a rebuttal, a clear, concise argument or statement that defends that faith. 
And again, when I say argument, I'm not talking about being argumentative. Having a good argument or good answers to questions that come up when somebody openly disagrees with your faith keeps you out of those arguments. A clear, concise answer keeps you from getting in an argument. Those kinds of answers stop those that question you and your faith. It stops them in their tracks. And it makes them think. And Jesus did this time and time again when he was questioned by the Pharisees. He didn't react and start arguing. He simply responded with an intelligent answer. An argument, if you will, that made them stop and think. Most of the time it was so good that they just walked away. I love the way Jesus handled the Pharisees. My favorite example is when they came to him and they brought the woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus. They brought her to Jesus. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. It says that they, they caught her in the very act of adultery, and they brought the woman to Jesus. And did anyone ever wonder why they didn't bring the man? Because if they caught her in the very act, they caught the man too. Isn't that interesting? That's probably a different sermon. But they caught this woman in adultery. They brought her to Jesus, and they tried to trick him by saying, the law of Moses requires that we stone this woman. But what do you say, great teacher? He says nothing. He writes in the sand a little bit. And they push him again, and he says, Let the one among you that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. (laughs) What an answer. One by one, they dropped their rocks, and they walked away. One of my daughters did this at school. The teacher didn't like her paper on abortion and uh, started arguing with her. I mean, she's supposed to write a paper. She picks her subject, she writes the paper, and then the teacher argues with her about the content of the paper. I don't think that's her job. It's to grade the structure of it and all that kind of stuff. Not, not the content, unless the content was craziness, but it wasn't craziness. She didn't like her paper on abortion, she started arguing with her and, and said this, don't you believe in a woman's right to choose? To which Anna, my argumentative one, didn't argue with her, but just said this, don't you believe in the baby's rights to live? It's simple. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to say that, right? Not that you're not a genius, Anna. And by the way, when I mention my kids' names, it's always been the rule that I give them 20 bucks. But when they're married, the deal's off. So... (laughs) The deal's off once they get married. All right. The teacher couldn't say anything else to that. There was nothing to say. She just stopped. I knew a kid in our church that was in elementary school, and he was being taught evolution theories and how adaptations over billions of years cause monkeys to eventually evolve into man. And this young boy asked the teacher, I mean, this is a fifth grader. He says, if that's true, then why do we still have monkeys? I mean, we've got people with PhDs who, I mean, swear by the theory of evolution, and they go into their whole life study is to lay, and a fifth grader comes up with a question that just annihilates the whole thing. It's a great argument, and all he did was ask a question. The teacher had no rebuttal. See, that's having an answer for every question. That's having an answer for even the hope that is within you. 
Apologetics is going to be our subject for the next few weeks. And not because I need to convince you all of your own faith. I think you're here. I think you have faith, right? I don't want to insult you by trying to convince you of a Jesus that you're already convinced of. But what I do want to do, and it's my job more than anything else as a pastor, and I truly believe this, it's to equip you to do the work of the ministry. See, you can pay me and you can pay the other pastors to do the work and you can sit back and go, ah, we pay pastors to do that. We don't have to do nothing. And that's what most of the American church does. But I tell you what, I'm sick of that. Because I think that's a pile of bunk. And you can define bunk however you want. We're here to equip. To equip. To equip. To equip. To give you the tools to help you do the work of the church to do the ministry of the church. There is not one person in this room that is not called to ministry. We try to make it out like this is big call, and there is a call vocationally. I mean, I'm called to be a vocational pastor. I believe that with all my heart. I'd do something else if I wasn't, trust me. There's a lot of easier things I could do. But everybody's called. Maybe not to vocational ministry, but they're called. Every person in this room is called to be a minister. And you can define minister as servant. To be a servant to people outside these four walls. To share the Christ that they have found. You know? I like to say it this way. We're just beggars who found where the bread is. And now we want to go out and give bread to some other people. I mean, we didn't earn it, right? We didn't deserve it. By God's grace, we found it. We received it. We we accepted it. And now we need to tell others. That's our ministry. That's our job. And my job as your pastor is to not just shepherd you and coddle you and visit you and call you. I'll do those things, sure. But it's to equip you to do the work of the ministry. That's how the church of God grows. That's how the kingdom of God multiplies. And through this series, I I pray that you will become ready in your defense of the gospel, ready in your defense of how Jesus Christ has given you a hope and a faith that cannot be shaken. I hope you can gain some knowledge regarding the subjects we'll be diving into. But even more than that, I hope and pray, man, it's my prayer, that you will get a renewed passion to dive into God's word and dig out the answers that are in there and even start reading some of the classic apologetic works like our book of the month this month, More Than a Carpenter. It's five bucks. We're not making a dime on it. I just wanted, we ordered a bunch of them so we could get it really cheap. Every person should read that book. And if you can't understand it because it is a little heady sometimes, just read it slow and out loud. And if you didn't understand that paragraph, what do you do? You read it again. It's not about plowing through and getting done. It's about getting what's in there and digging it out. There's so much good stuff in that book. How many have ever read More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell? Is it a good read, Miss Sandy? 30 years ago, and it's still, it's still a good, in fact, it's, it's, a, it's a new version of it, but it's the same book, yeah. But it's great, it's great. More Than a Carpenter, great book. Another great book that, that I've read that I love is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I hope this congregation would latch on to some of those things because they will make you armed and dangerous when it comes to sharing your faith. I believe that the 94% of Christians who have never shared their faith, and that's a shocking statistic, I've shared it a lot lately, 94% of all Christians will never share their faith. Did you hear what I said? 
I've said this before, if you're a Christian that never shares your faith, and there's 94, if statistics are right, 94% of you have never shared your faith and never will. I question your Christianity. Well, how dare you? How can you have the hope that Jesus brings you as an individual and not somehow share it? How? 94% of Christians will never share their faith. Folks, that's got to change. I pray that our church would have more like 6% haven't shared their faith. And, that, and only because they, uh, uh, we flip that over, you know, flip that around. 6% have never shared. But because, why? Because um, they're too new Christians yet. And I don't think you, that's even a good answer. Because it seems like most people share it the first few weeks, don't they? I think, though, that it's not because they're unwilling. I think it's because they haven't been equipped to do it. Why would God send you someone to share your faith when he knows that you're not prepared or even able to share it? See, I, I think about this stuff. Maybe God's people aren't standing there saying, I'm not going to share my faith. Maybe they just never do anything to equip themselves. And God says, you know what? I'm not sending anybody there because they're not even ready for this. So I'll send them over to this 6% over here that are ready and prepared. I think that's a biblical concept. I love the fact that we are a Pentecostal people. How many are glad you're Pentecostal? We are people of his presence. We love his presence. That's awesome, and we depend on the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to lead us and to our divine appointments and guide us in all that we do as we talk with him all day long but sometimes we neglect the basic elements of our faith and we use the holy spirit hear me hear me carefully hear me we we use the holy spirit as an excuse to be lazy we are told in peter have an answer we see in the life of jesus an example of always having an answer let me say it this way because i just love pentecostal people why would god continue pouring out his holy spirit on you which, if you remember, in the book of Acts was for a purpose, right? To be witnesses throughout the world, right? Look it up, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Why would he continue pouring out his spirit on his people so that they could be witnesses when they will not or maybe refuse or just don't engage in being a witness? Why would he keep pouring out the Holy Spirit on and into his people if they're not operating in that power to be witnesses? And I mean, I, I, I love glorying in the presence of God as much as the next person. I love altar times where we just get in God's presence and it just lasts and it's just wonderful. I love that kind of thing. But there comes a time when we must come down off that mountaintop just as Moses did and interact with the people that desperately need what we have. It's wonderful, the glory in his presence. And the church is meant to be somewhat of a refuge for sure. But if that's all it is, is a refuge for you to come into, oh, and feel God again, and feel God again, and then go back out into the world and not really engage people in ministry, <coughs> then you just come back in to get filled up. We're missing it. <coughs> that's missing it. We are filled up so we can be poured out like a drink offering. Amen, on a dry and thirsty land. Is anybody hearing me this morning? Yes. I'm not saying that we should 
stop depending on the Spirit and start depending on ourselves. I'm, I'm not saying that we should prepare like crazy. What I am saying is we should prepare like crazy and then walk in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Our ministry is a partnership with God. If you believe and have faith, God's going to do half the work. He'll do the second half because he's waiting for you to prepare yourself. Amen. Study to show thyself approved. I love the Bereans in the book of, in the book of Acts. I think it, it talks about the Bereans. The Bereans don't have an epistle written to them, do they? The church at Berea. Why is that? It all, it, I think it's because it says in the book of Acts, we, we get insight on it, that they studied the scriptures like lawyers. They examined them. If the church would examine the scriptures like the Bereans, maybe we wouldn't need the correction that we often need. Those people were ready. They were studied up. So to say it one more time, this will be an equipping series, not necessarily a convincing series, even though I'm sure there will be those in our congregation or those who are watching online that, that may need some convincing. But I want to start off today in this series by giving you a phrase that always seems to find its way into conversations that involve defending the faith. Who is Jesus? Jesus himself asked this question to his disciples. Matthew 16, 13 through 16 says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And if you look back into the Greek, that, that literally means, who do the common people say that I am? He discluded the Pharisees from the conversation. But who do the common people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And one of the things that I've heard people say so many times, and, and give me a amen if that, if, that, uh, if that relates with you. I've heard people say this so many times. I believe Jesus was just a good teacher. Have you heard that before? If you talk about Jesus at all, out there, outside these four walls, someone's going to say, well, I believe he was a great moral teacher. And he was. But he was so much more than that, right? I hear it all the time. Well, I believe he was a great teacher. And yes, Jesus was an amazing teacher. That can't be disputed. I mean, he taught for three years, and his teachings are still having a profound effect on the world today. This, this takes us to a, a place. I, I want to introduce you to something called critical thinking. Some of you know what critical thinking is. If you know what it is, say amen. amen. Man, I, I just feel like there's a, there, like you guys are so awake today. I mean, this is, this is awesome. This takes us to this critical thinking thing. If you know what it is, say amen. amen. You know what critical thinking is? Don't keep being confused by the word critical here. Even though this word is often associated with being negatively judgmental or fault-finding, that's not the only sense of the word. The type of critical thinking I'm talking about is in reference to using all of our faculties to evaluate ideas in an attempt to discover their veracity or falsity. So it's, it's so important that you understand that critical thinking is, is one of those things that used to be taught in our schools, that used to be taught on our campuses, and Christians oftentimes veer away from critical thinking because they, don't, they, they think that, oh, if you look at the Bible with critical eyes, you're going to find errors, and then it's not going to work. I'm telling you what, the Word of God is truth, and you can have the most critical eye you want to have on it. You're going to find out that it's real, and it's true, and it's solid, and it's a foundation you can build your life on. 
I'm not scared of critical thinking when it comes to the Word of God because the Word of God is true. It's absolutely true. And so, critical thinking. I guess we got the definition up here already. That's all right. Um, before we get to that, I, I, I'll say this. Critical thinking is, is the objective analysis and evaluation of an issue in order to form a judgment. It is sometimes defined as thinking about thinking. Okay, are you with me? Okay, critical thinking skills include the ability to interpret, verify, and reason, all of which involve applying the principles of logic. Well, how can you use logic when it comes to the Word of God? Or to answer the question, who is Jesus? And I'm telling you, you can. In a world where many people believe whatever favorite singers or favorite actresses or political affiliates say, we could use some critical thinking, couldn't we? Because most people... Most people just care about how they feel or how someone makes them feel, which is a dangerous thing, even in the church. There are some individuals who, within Christianity, have assumed, that, again, that critical thinking is dangerous. When it comes to biblical truths, they may even say things like, human reasoning is foolishness next to God, and I would agree with them wholeheartedly. But we serve a God that created order and structure. He created the cosmos, which literally means order. God is a God of order. There are patterns and logistical elements in the universe that can't be unnoticed. You see them all around us, the seasonal patterns. I, I saw this when I was in Africa at the watering hole. It was amazing to me the rhythm of nature and how it declared Jesus as Lord. It declared God as being real. I, let me tell you why. Because out in the bush... Animals were killing animals. We saw a cheetah kill, and we, we didn't see it kill, but we saw it right after he killed an impala, and he was eating it, which was a rare sight. We have video of it. We're like, what, 10 feet away? We're watching him just chew up this impala. You could smell the innards. It, we were so close. It was awesome. <laughs> it was really awesome. And there's this, like, kill thing going on, right, out in the bush. And then the, we go back, and we're, we're, we're overlooking the watering hole, and all of a sudden... 30 elephants come in and they drink. No other animals, 30 elephants. Then the elephants leave. And then like clockwork, five minutes later, here come the zebras. And the zebras leave. And then Pumbaa comes walking in with his family, the warthogs. And they drink. And it was like they, were, they just all took turns. It was weird. It was like, who's, who's dictating that? And there was no kills at the watering hole. Very rarely is there kills right at the watering hole. Just outside the watering hole, there might be. It's like the animals had a respect for one another to get water. You don't think that God put things in order to be that way? I mean, it's amazing when you think about it. There's so many things that just have this order to them within our universe. The shores. Man, we were, we were swimming in the ocean this last week, and the, the, the waves that just come in. I mean, what can stop the force of those waves? And they just come in like clockwork. And they just, you just sit and watch. How many of you ever been to the ocean? You know what I'm talking about? And you're, you, it's relaxing because it's like, wow, there's something way bigger than me. And it's just causing these patterns throughout the world. The moon and the stars and how they can be mapped. It's unreal. There seems to be a logic to it all in order. Critical thinking in regards to biblical truths should not scare us. Because if someone is seeking truth, the Bible says they'll find it. They'll find it. True critical thinking helps them get to that truth. 
It's important that we help lead them in that because so many people don't think. You cannot say Jesus was just a good teacher. That is a ridiculous statement. And I'm going to tell you why. We're going to use critical thinking right here this morning to figure that out, figure out why, and let you know why. Let's go back to that question. Who is Jesus? In a conversation in which you have to defend your faith, you might ask that person, who do you believe Jesus to be? You can be sharing your testimony, sharing the faith that you have, sharing how good God is to you. Man, you can say, praise God. I just love what he's doing in my life. It's awesome. And the person says, oh, I don't believe in all that Jesus stuff. Which to where you say, well, who do you believe Jesus to be? Which they'll say almost like clockwork, a good teacher. I think he was a good teacher. Well, I don't believe he existed. Or they'll have some other answer. How I many you know what I'm talking about? You've heard that. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Historically, we knew he existed. His birth is declared every time someone writes a date down. That's pretty significant, right? B.C., before Christ, and A.D., which stands for the Latin phrase Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord, or the year he was born. Again, many people will acknowledge that he was a great teacher, but he was God. They're not so sure about that, though. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He was a former professor at Cambridge University, and he was an agnostic at one time. But he talks about this, and I'll put the quote up on the screen. It says this, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level, <laughs> on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. He continues, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Church, we need to be ready with an answer so we can walk people through some critical thinking to show them that Jesus was more than just a great teacher. He was more than that. There aren't very many answers, if you think about it, that you can really come up with to answer this question, who was Jesus? He was either the Son of God, as he claimed. He was Lord. Everybody say Lord. Lord. Or he was the greatest liar who ever lived uh, to, to the point of being demonically possessed as his lies have deceived many, if, if that was true. Or if his claims were were false, then there are only two roads to go down. You either, you either uh, have to believe that he knew about them being false or that he didn't know about it being false. So let's start with that he knew they were false. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, right? If he knew that his claims were false, which we know they weren't, but if he knew that they were false, then he was a liar. He was a liar. And let's start with exploring the evidence for the idea that he knew his own claims were false. It, it's, if he knew that he wasn't God, then he was deliberately lying and deceiving his followers. But he would have been a hypocrite because he taught about the importance of honesty and being truthful, no matter what the cost. 
So not only was he a liar then, he was a hypocrite. He also taught others to trust in him for their eternal salvations. If he knew he wasn't God, then this makes him someone who is pure evil. Trust in me. Trust in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How could you say that knowingly lying unless you were just pure evil? So if he's a liar, he had to be just the devil incarnate, just liar because he was messing with people's eternities. You could also say that if he knew he wasn't God and he was lying about it, that he was a total fool because it was these claims that led him right to his own crucifixion. I mean, don't forget that he could have backed off those claims and saved himself at any moment, even to the very end. I am the Son of God. I am the Son of God. I am the one. I am the one. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the Christ. Well, we're going to nail you to a cross for it then. Are you, are, are you still the Christ? Yes, I am. Jesus didn't back away from his claim. That would make him a fool. I mean, lie to the point of being nailed to a cross? What would be the point? You see where we're thinking about this critically? We're taking the evidence and looking at it. What, what actually happened? How can we come to a conclusion? It doesn't make any sense to believe that Jesus was a deliberate liar about being the Son of God. For anyone that says he was merely a good teacher, a good moral teacher, they haven't really thought about it all that much. It, he, how could a great moral teacher mislead people in regards to the most important point of his teaching, which was his own identity? I'm a great moral teacher, but I'm going to lie to you. It doesn't make any sense. No sense at all. Jesus was a great moral teacher, but again, he was so much more than that. If that's all he was, then he was a liar. But there is no logic in this thinking and no evidence that supports it. And think about this. Wherever Jesus has preached, from then till now, the result has changed lives. I mean, alcoholics become sober. Prostitutes are redeemed. Liars become the bearers of truth. Nations become stronger. Families are preserved. The fruit is on the tree, folks. Millions and millions of lives changed. I think about the lives in here that have been changed. Man, Jamie, you've been changed. You're not the same guy when, that you were when you walked in this place years ago. I won't even talk about Josh. <laughs> wow. What a life changed. What a life changed. How many have been changed by the power of God yourself? I mean, you don't want to know the old Barry. I don't want to know the old Barry. Sometimes God reminds me of who he used to be. But wherever Jesus has preached, people's lives are changed. And it's not just those within Christianity who've taken notice of this. Josh McDowell in that book, More Than a Carpenter, says this, William Lecky, one of Great Britain's most noted historians and fierce opponents of organized Christianity, saw the effect of true Christianity on the world. On the world. And he writes this. And, and remember, he's against organized religion. He's against Christianity. He said this, It was reserved for Christianity to present to the world an ideal which through all the changes of 18 centuries has inspired the hearts of men with an impassioned love has shown itself capable of acting on all ages, nations, temperaments, and conditions, has been not only the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice. The simple record of these three sure years of active life has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the dis 
inquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. And think about it logically. If Jesus was a deliberate liar, why did he go to the Jewish people, for goodness sakes? If he wanted people to follow him, why didn't he go to the people that was more polytheistic, believing in many gods, like those in Egypt or Greece? A good liar would have had more effect on these groups, not the monotheistic uh, people that were the Jews, that the Jews were, who believed in one God. It's like he went to the worst people group of all time uh, for, for, for them to believe his lie. Why would he do that if he was a liar? You can't separate Jesus from his message. And the way Jesus lived and the way Jesus taught, you can't take those two apart from his, from You can't separate them. There's no way he could have been a liar. There just isn't. It doesn't make sense to think of him that way. And if, if, if Jesus couldn't have been a deliberate liar, maybe he was a self-deceived one. Maybe he actually believed that he claimed what he believed what he claimed about himself. Okay, so it's not. Let's say it's not true. If we're going to critically think about this, number one, then he was a liar. If it wasn't true that he was the Son of God, the the, the Lord, the Messiah, all that he says he was, all of his claims, then then he was either a liar because he he and he didn't believe his lies, or he's a lunatic because he did believe his lies. Does that make sense to you? A lunatic. Think about it. What would we do with somebody who went around claiming that they were God today? We would say they were crazy. What would happen to them in our current society? We'd probably send them to some sort of mental institution, wouldn't we? Where they could be medicated and watched in order that they wouldn't hurt themselves or anyone else. The same would have been true back then. They would have been marginalized and thought to be crazy or demon-possessed. And maybe they were. But remember the story in which Jesus healed the demon-possessed man? The Pharisees claimed and accused Jesus, saying, It is only by Beelzebub, that prince of demon, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And Jesus says, No kingdom divided can stand. How can Satan cast out Satan? Again, a great answer from a man that was more than a man. He was intellectually stimulating. He was poised. He was composed. And he didn't display the abnormalities or the mental imbalance that you would normally see in someone who was completely deranged. He was either the greatest liar who ever lived, which doesn't make sense. We've already talked about that. Or he was a lunatic, which doesn't make any sense because he didn't act like a lunatic. There simply is no record of it anywhere in Scripture or anywhere else in historical literature his teaching themselves, teachings themselves are not the ravings of a deranged, crazy person. He spoke some of the most profound things in all of human history. In, that, in the book, uh, More Than a Carpenter, uh, Josh McDowell tells a story of a kid who came up to him and said, it was a student uh, who attended university in California, and he said that his psychology professor at, at, in class said this, that all he has to do is pick up the Bible and read portions of Christ's teachings to many of his patients. That's all the counseling they need. That's a psychologist in a Californian university. Psychiatrist J.T. Fisher thought Jesus' teaching were so profound that he said this, if you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists 
on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, and this guy can talk, can he? You would have an awkward and an incomplete summary of the Sermon on the Mount. And it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. For nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hand the complete answer to restless and fruitless yearning. Here rests the blueprint for successful human life with optimum mental health and contentment. That's, an, that's a crazy statement. It's awesome. It's not crazy. It's awesome. We'll just say it's crazy awesome, won't we? And it should be said that mere men do not claim to be God. If they do, they certainly do not display the sanity of thoughtful teaching and sound reasoning that Jesus displayed. A lunatic? There's no way. The evidence just doesn't support the theory. So if he isn't a liar, and he's not a lunatic, there's only really one answer, that what he said was true. And if it, it's true, if Jesus... Well, I believe some of what Jesus said. That doesn't, that doesn't hold water, does it? You either got to believe it all, or you got to believe none of it. You can't say that, well, I believe half of what he said because he's kind of a liar over here. He's not a liar. He claimed to be the Son of God. The only option is to believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and is. And here lies the problem with most people. If you conclude that he is truly Lord, which most people don't want to do, then you must believe everything that he said is true, and you must come to the conclusion that he must be submitted to, or, or, or you have to completely reject him. There's no choice. Well, there's a choice, but there's really no choice. You have one or the other. That's it. To make a decision about him is to re to not make a decision about him is to reject him. And when we look at this question, who is Jesus, through the lens of critical thinking, it's not a question of whether it's possible if he was a lord, if he was lord, or if he was a liar, or if he was a lunatic. Critical thinking wants to know what was the most probable. And that evidence clearly shines in the highest probability of Jesus being exactly who he said he was. He was Lord and is Lord of all. And it's amazing how people can talk about God and about religions and morality, and it generally goes pretty smooth, but as soon as, again, as you bring up the name of Jesus, all hell breaks loose in the conversation. There's something that is different about Jesus, and challenging people with the simple question, who do you believe Jesus to be, can open up a conversation where you not only find yourself defending your faith, but sharing it in a way that will bring about salvations through divine appointments. God will always send people to those who are truly prepared to minister them. Prepared in prayer, in being prayed up, and full of the Spirit of God, as well as studied up and ready to give a clear, intelligent answer to the questions they have. I said earlier that some Pentecostals are lazy because they just, they just say, well, I don't have to do anything. I just let the Holy Spirit flow through me, and it all happens for me. I understand that thinking. I'm a Pentecostal person, too. I love it when the Spirit of God flows through me. But I'm telling you, if we'll do the work and study to show ourselves approved, and we invite the Spirit to come in and use all that we've studied, guess what happens? Something unbelievable. Something amazing happens. I think you've got to do both.
And my dad used to say, you know, God speaks to you in a lot of ways. Through his word, through his spirit, and through that lump on the top of your shoulders. He's given you lots of ways to hear from him, right? A brain. And I'm not trying to say that we should human reason our way through our faith. I understand there comes a point in time when every person by faith has to believe. I understand that. For me, it was really pretty simple because I'm someone who, who, who doesn't necessarily need to have all the evidence laid out before me. But when I was in college, on the college campus, a secular college campus, it was crazy how when you start to engage people about the gospel, they would just, I mean, have all these things to say. And I just sat there like I didn't know what to say. And I realized I can have the Spirit of God and I can, I can believe the way I believe, but how can I ever be an effective witness if I don't prepare myself? And so I started getting prepared. I've had moments where the Holy Spirit has picked me up, basically, and caused me to stand on a chair in an English lit class and say, I think what you're teaching right now is garbage. And she said, well, why don't you come down to the front of the classroom and tell us how you believe life is or the meaning of life. And gone down in that secular campus and put my two cliffs on the, 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 the blackboard and, or the whiteboard at the time, I guess it was, and, and start talking about Jesus and how he, and it's a class of a hundred and some odd students and, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm down there preaching. I, I was a freshman in college or, or a sophomore actually in college and I'm, I'm preaching this and I realize I'm, I'm kind of having an out-of-body experience. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm standing in front of my class and preaching the gospel. That's the Holy Spirit. I've had those moments where the Holy Spirit does that but I've also had those moments where I didn't know what to say back. We ought to be prepared in season and out of season. We ought to be prepared at all time to give a, an answer for the hope that is within us and be led of the Spirit as we do that. Can you imagine how dangerous a people could be if they had both going on? I want you to have an answer. I mean, the simple question, who do you say Jesus is, can lead a conversation right to someone getting saved. Jesus has done this for me. Well, I don't really put much stock in that religious stuff. Well, who do you say Jesus is? Folks, every person has to answer this question. To not answer it is to answer it. Every person has to answer this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Corey, when you're on the work site, you get into those little conversations that I know you get into with those guys, people that are a little rough. Are they a little rough? Oh, yeah. You can say, who do you say Jesus is? And when they start to say, well, I don't know, talk through it. Have an answer. Have an answer. This message in and of itself doesn't give you answers, I don't think, not all of them anyway, but I hope that it will spark a passion within you to become as prepared as you can possibly be. 
to have an answer for every question that comes your way, to explain the reason that you are different and the reason you have hope when so many others don't. One of our core values in this church is to reach the lost. We talk about it all the time. Reach the lost, reach the lost, reach the lost. This is part of what we must do to accomplish that. Prepare ourselves. The vision statement for this church is to rescue, develop, and deploy. This is about being ready. It's about being prepared, prayed up, filled, read and studied up to go forth and make disciples. You know, the best defense you can have is a great offense. Amen? Amen? Hallelujah. Well, I got five minutes left, so I'm just going to keep preaching. No, I'm not. I, I know this is a little different message today. When you get into apologetics, it can get a little heady. Definitions, quotes, all that stuff, and get that little way. But I want you to understand something. If you will prepare yourself, I actually, I want you, I want to promise you something. If you will prepare yourself, the opportunities will start flowing like a river. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First Assembly of God podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest message.